the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Uh, I'm really glad you're here because John chapter 11, in my opinion, is one of the most significant and important chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, We could have a debate about whether it's top three, top five, top ten. That's another debate for another day. But there is no doubt because of the issues that it tackles. It is, without a doubt, one of the most significant chapters in all of Scripture. So I'm going to take it over three weeks because there's a lot here. Most pastors, when they preach this, just want to get to Lazarus, which doesn't happen until verses 42, 43, and 44 when he comes out of the grave. We're going to do that the week after Easter. So this week, we're going to do an introduction to some of these issues and the introduction to our story. We're off next week for Easter in terms of Bible study because the church juggles its Easter schedule session. There's just back-to-back-to-back-to-back worship. So there's no Bible study for us or any other class next week. When we come back the week after Christmas, we'll finish Lazarus uh, coming out of the grave. The week after that, we're going to do the last dozen verses on uh, the reaction to to Lazarus coming out of the grave. So we're going to do three weeks on this phenomenal chapter. And when I'm done, I think you'll realize, yep, Chris was right. This is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. I think you're going to enjoy the study. The reason why it is so big is it helps us answer some of life's toughest questions. That's what I called the lesson today was answering life's hardest questions. Because if you engage in society as a Christian, Somebody will throw these questions back in your face or you'll hear them echoed in despair or wonder or something else. Such as, where was God during something horrific? The question I hear is, where was God during Auschwitz? Where was God when the Chernobyl power plant in Belarus exploded and instantaneously exposed 500,000 people to fatal radiation? Where was God when the tsunami hit the coast of Japan and killed or severely injured 100,000 people? Or on and on and on. Where is God in the midst of incomprehensible suffering? The other side of the exact same coin, the other side of the exact same question is a fill-in-the-blank for them. Where was God or why would God allow something to happen to them? They'll say, where was God or why did God allow my baby to die? Why did God allow me to have this terminal diagnosis? Why did God allow that husband who just got married with a baby on the way to have to die? And you as a believer had got to have an answer to that question as well. Or the one I hear most often from Christians is, Why has God been silent despite my prayerful anguish? And they'll describe praying for something critical to them and not hearing God, not feeling the Holy Spirit move and wondering. 
Those three questions are three of the biggest questions this chapter is going to answer. I'm going to introduce them this week. I'm going to give you answers this week. We're going to go deeper next week and even deeper the week after that. So these ideas build, but I will scratch the itch this morning. We're in John chapter 11, verse 1. It starts with introducing the place and the people. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany. Let me situate you geographically. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. At the time of Jesus, it would have been less than an hour's walk. Today, it's just a part of the mass suburbs. It's just a part of greater Jerusalem. It's just about two miles uh, east of Jerusalem. This is a good map showing how rocky it is and showing that it's on the Jericho Road, the main road going east out of Jerusalem that travelers would have been on. This is a postcard of Bethany that was taken right before World War I. Back in the early 19-teens, it was still a, a village. It was still outside of Jerusalem ways, although it was a nice walk. Today, you can't walk there because of this, the West Bank Wall that divides Palestinian side from the, from the uh, Israeli side. It's 25 feet high on one side. It's got a lot of graffiti on the Palestinian side. The Israeli side keeps it nice and clean. But if you tried to walk from your hotel in downtown Jerusalem, you'd hit this and not get to Lazarus Tomb or what they call Lazarus Tomb. Uh, if you go on a bus, it takes about an hour to go around this thing and come in the long way. So it's a long ways to see something that's very, very debatable about whether it's Lazarus Tomb. If you take the hour bus ride, they're more than happy to take your 25 U.S. dollars or 25 euro to see this. Uh, it's got signs all over it. It's the biggest thing in Bethany. Interestingly, the Arab name of this city is not Bethany. No one calls this Bethany because it's a Palestinian city. Its Arabic name is Place of Lazarus. And it's had that name for centuries and centuries and centuries. So everybody's pretty sure this is where Lazarus is from. The tomb is highly debatable. The tomb wasn't identified as Lazarus' tomb until 400 years after the story I'm going to give you. That's a long time to say we know this is where the tomb was. There is no doubt it was in the middle of a graveyard. There's no doubt it's next to some really nice houses. Whether it's Lazarus is debatable. The interesting thing to me is sitting on top of this for the last 300 years has been a mosque. And the mosque covers the stairway that originally went down to the tomb. So the Franciscans dug in the current tunnel that's right here by this door. If you walk down those really steep steps, you get down there and the tomb of Lazarus is allegedly the hole in the ground that you see right there. This is a close-up of what you see at the very bottom where it looks like a few more stairs go down. It's basically just two more steps and then a slab of stone where you could slide a body down there and maybe go down there and crouch down and kind of, you know, do whatever you want to do with the wrappings. Uh, and like I said, I can't say definitively this is not Lazarus' tomb, but I've researched it extensively. Everything I've ever studied about it raises some big questions. So I think it's a way to separate tourists from their dollars. If you're ever in the area, I would not put it on your short list. But if you go there, they will tell you this is Lazarus' tomb. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Doesn't really matter to me. It introduces our guy as Lazarus. He is in all four of the Gospels. We've got multiple stories about him. The fascinating thing about him is prior to this event, he is silent. When Jesus shows up, Mary and Martha talk, 
He is silent. When he's anywhere else with Jesus, he's silent. He's a quiet guy. Not one word is recorded in Scripture. I call this his turning point because after this, they can't shut him up. And he's talking so much the Jewish authorities want to kill Jesus and him because he's talking so much. So he goes from silent to having the world's most powerful and pronounced verbal story, verbal witness that you could imagine. We're going to study in John chapter 12 his talk. We're going to study Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in John chapter 12. And you'll see in chapter 12, he can't be quiet. Now, the reason he's so successful, the reason why the Jewish authorities at the time want to kill him is because his witness matched his life. Everything he did, as we'll see in chapter 12, is now all about his resuscitation. It's not a resurrection, as I'll teach in a few minutes. It's a resuscitation, and he's just blown away by it. Life lesson, our verbal witness, your verbal witness, just like mine, has to match our life's words and actions. If you don't, there's a disconnect with whatever testimony you want to give. It's why the way we live our life matters. It's not that we're keeping a religious code to punch our ticket into heaven. It's so when we share our faith, there's not a disconnect between how we talk, how we live, and trying to share with people what Christ has done in our lives. Let me give you some insight on this. It is theoretically possible to have a great verbal witness and have no fruit whatsoever because of the life disconnect. It's also possible to say very little and have a deep and lasting impact on others when one's life and words reflect Christ's grace and power. For me in my own life, my mom's dad embodies that last sentence or embodied. He was the quietest man I have ever met, but he's also the greatest man I've ever met in my own life. His work, his family commitments, his church commitments, when he did speak, what he said was so powerful and so profound and so lasting to everyone in our family that although he was a man of very few words, his words and his life reflected Christ's grace and power. So I know you've probably got someone in your life where you can say, yep, both those extremes I've seen in our own lives, we've got to be very careful. It's why we watch our tongue. It's why we watch our action around those around us, but most importantly, because of what it does with our witness. Second person. Martha, we also see her in all four Gospels. We see her all through Scripture. She's our busybody. She's our servant. She's always working. So in our Scripture verses about her, for example, in Luke chapter 10, it's just her and her sister Mary and Jesus. Lazarus is out working. He's not there that day. And Mary is at Jesus' feet studying Martha is scurrying around, and despite serving two people, she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, would you have this woman, her sister Mary, come help me, right? She wanted help to serve two people, and she's fussing because her sister is doing some Bible study rather than helping her get dinner together. And she's fussing in Luke chapter 10. But as the verse alludes to in verse 2, and as we're going to see this story in John chapter 12, John gives a little introduction and says, Mary's the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. That's the story in John chapter 12. Martha is there as well. And we know from John chapter 12, there are at least 17 people there. All the disciples 
Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Jesus, Simon, the dudes whose house it was in, plus Mary, the mother of Jesus, we see at least 17 people. And there, Martha's turning point from this story is she's serving 17 people or more, not two, and she doesn't complain one word. She's got a servant's heart and she's happy to serve. So before this transformative experience in John chapter 11, she's fussy, fussy, fussy. After this experience, it's serve, serve, serve. There's not a hint of, of, of uh, 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 grump, grumpiness in her at all. Life lesson, because using your spiritual gift is an act of serving. Many Christians find such service to be frustrating. That's our illustration of Martha. Avoiding frustration requires all of us to ask ourselves, when you serve, who are you serving? Martha pre-John chapter 11 is a picture of serving ourselves, right? It makes us feel good to do what we're good doing. If we're good being a host or a hostess, we love doing it, but it's all about us. It's not those we're serving. If we've got a spiritual gift doing something else, a lot of us love doing that, but it's just for them. There are a lot of people teaching this morning at our church, I'm presuming, and other churches all over North America where it's all about the teacher's ego. That's why they do it. It's not about serving. It's not about teaching God's word. It's all about them. So we've all got to ask the questions, when we serve, who are we serving? Here's the diagnostic. When you serve in any capacity, how do you usually feel? The reason this is a diagnostic is, in my experience, and Scripture backs it up, when you are sold out to serving Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances are, you feel awesome. When you serve and you're frustrated, miserable, unhappy, feel unappreciated, feel something else, it's not about Christ, it's about something else. It's about power, it's about prestige, it's about position, it's about something other than Jesus Christ. So I talk to people about using their spiritual gift, and I hear things like, I just don't enjoy it. Or I hear, I'm not very good about it, people criticize me. Or I hear, I get so mad because when I serve, other people do a poor job and I get frustrated at them. Every time I hear one of those excuses, it's filtering through pride and ego and prestige and power and position and everything else, and it's coming out as a reason they don't want to use their spiritual gift. If God has given you a spiritual gift, which we know from Scripture is given to every single one of us, your heart resonates with the Holy Spirit when you do that for Him. It's the way we work physically. If there's something you can do well, for guys, shoot a basket or hit a golf ball. For women, do something that you love doing, whether it's cross-stitch or cooking or leading something or teaching something or whatever it may be. When you can do your physical gift, it's awesome. And that's because the giftedness that God gave you in the physical sense resonates with your emotions when you do it. That's why for a guy, hitting a good golf ball when you're a great golfer is an awesome feeling because that's resonating. Same thing with any other thing anybody, male or female, does physically. Spiritually, it's the exact same way. When you're serving for him, it resonates. So if you find yourself frustrated, be careful with the diagnostic. It's probably about you and not him. Mary, 
Mary is the one we're going to do the deep dive on in chapter 12. Lots to tell about her. Hold her. I just want to introduce Lazarus and Martha. And a little bit on Mary. We're going to tie her up in April when we do her story. It says in verse 3, so the sister sent a message. Okay, they didn't have carrier pigeon. They didn't have email. They didn't have postal mail. So the only way to do it is a person. So they sent a runner to Jesus and told him, Lord, the one you love is sick. We know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus loved these three brothers and a brother and two sisters, and they loved him. They are incredibly deep in their love. And the word that's used to describe their love is phileo, brotherly love. It's described in an earthly, human sense of they really love time together. They really love hugging on each other. But it gives us an opportunity to use this as a picture to introduce us into some of these life's biggest questions and look at the issue of, wait a minute, if Lazarus really, really loves Jesus, and as we're going to see, Jesus really, really loves Lazarus, as Mary and Martha point out, why let him get sick? Why let him die? It is a picture for us of profound significance. We do a little dive here on understanding tragedy for those Christ loves. This helps us answer that second question of why does something bad happen to me? It also helps us answer the bigger question of where is God in the midst of fill-in-the-blank tragedy. A couple of truths for you. Number one, men and women of God are still fragile and fallen humans. We are born into fragile bodies that can die from the moment of birth. We are born into fallen bodies that literally begin to die as soon as we are born. Skin dies, cells die, hair dies, even on a newborn infant. The death process starts at birth because of our fallen nature. And once we get past 20, what starts at birth just accelerates. So we're dying from the day we're born. So we're still fragile. We're still fallen humans until we get resurrected bodies that won't be fragile and won't be fallen. Truth number two, God uses our fallen world to teach both us and the lost deeper truths about himself. It's the ultimate picture of the sovereignty of God. We are. Because in a fallen world that Satan rules with death and horrific things happening to people, God says, I know everything going on. I am totally in charge. And despite death and suffering, I will still use those horrific experiences to show those who love me, and those who don't know me more about me. So it is through tragedy that we can look through the tragedy and see him or see pictures of him despite, uh, despite what's going on. Cross-reference, Psalm 1971. Psalm 119 is a great praise about living in tough times. And verse 17 says, It was good for me to be afflicted, so that I might learn your decrees. Or if I'm translating this Hebrew, I say that I might learn your word. Because the Hebrew word for decrees is your law. God's law is God in the Old Testament, it's God's word. So the psalmist said, it was good for me to be afflicted 
so that I might be driven to your word looking for answers. Great insight on tragedy sensitizes us to what's going on in the mind of God. Number three, when we take our troubles to him, he draws closer to us. Lazarus is sick when we start our story. Lazarus, no big surprise ending here, is going to die. Everybody knows the story. Jesus lets him suffer and lets him die, which is kind of hard to wrap your brain around. When we take our troubles to him, he draws closer. He is doing ministry. He intentionally waits two days. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But despite the suffering and pain, he's still drawing closer. He's going to them. Now, cross-reference again here, Psalm 46.1. Psalm 46.1 tells us God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In my Bible, I've circulated very present. Chris Martin's Hebrew translation here is always close. Always close and very present are synonyms for the same Hebrew words here, very present help in trouble. That means the reason he's refuge and strength is he's not my genie in the bottle, but he's there with me going through it. So if there is a believer hypothetically in Auschwitz, if there is a believer hypothetically at Chernobyl, if there's a believer hypothetically in Japan when the tsunami strikes, where is God? The answer is in our midst. He sees it. He knows it. There's no hiding it from him. And what I tell most people is, as we're going to see later in this story, he's crying. He weeps over tragedy. And it is, to me, the most precious aspect of Jesus' humanity. It's very comforting that he got hungry. It's very comforting that he got scared. It's very comforting that he had anxiety. It's very comforting that he had depression. He had all the physical things you and I suffer with. But the fact the creator of the universe was moved to tears by tragedy is a level of empathy that provides my greatest encouragement in the humanity of my Savior. So when we see him as being present help in trouble, it's with us in tragedy, even if he's holding us as we both cry. Now that makes you stop and say, wait a minute, what kind of God is this? And that's the exact question I want you to be asking. Hang in there, we're going to see it. little life lesson. There's great comfort in the proper basis of our appeals to God for his help. His love of us rather than the degree of our love for him. Let me explain why I say this. When we go to God, we go to God because we need help. And the premise of that is, I love him, I believe in him, I'm running to him. Okay, I'm running to God. I love him. But the basis of my prayers to him have nothing to do with my love. The basis of my prayers to him have to do with his love for me. Because his love for me is incomprehensible. It is so deep. My love for him is as fragile and as messed up as my fallen, aging body. If the test of our petitions to him 
or a nature of our love, then whether prayers got answered will depend on us jumping through a bunch of hoops to be self-righteous. That can never be the standard. The standard of our appeal that's unwavering is his love for us is unchanging. His love for us is beyond comprehension. So it has nothing to do with my love for him. My love for him is a reaction to his love for me, but that's not why I pray. So keep that in mind. We jump to verse 4. Jesus heard the message. He gets the message from the runner. And he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, pause for a second and understand what's going on here. Jesus says this as soon as he gets the message. So who hears this? The disciples hear it and the runner hears it. And presumably the runner turns right around and goes back and tells Mary and Martha. We're talking about that in just a second. But when Jesus says the sickness will not end in death, if you know the rest of the story, which I'm assuming all of you do, you go, wait a minute. Lazarus is a man who has an appointment to die, right? It's going to happen in a couple of verses. So Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. And you're like, wait a minute. I've read ahead. This sickness will end in death. What is Jesus talking about? We got to understand when Jesus talks about death, his perceptions of death and his language of death is totally different than ours because he's got the creator's perspective. We've got the perspective of the created. Now, let me give you two truths here that I think are life changing. Number one is that God has planned all of our days. Scripture tells us God has planned all of our days. That's exactly what Jesus says. When Jesus says the sickness will not end in death, Jesus knows everything that's about to happen to Lazarus. Nothing escapes him. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He's being precise in his language. He's going to go deeper in his language. Jesus knows the number of days Lazarus has left. He knows the same thing for us. Let me show you my mom's favorite Bible verse. She's here today. You can ask her after church and she'll tell you why. My mom's favorite Bible verse, Psalm 139, 16. You saw who you created me to be before I came to be, before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me to live were all recorded in your book. My mom's favorite verse has a little bit to do with my dad's death in October has a little bit to do with all of us wondering our own mortality. has to do with her wondering about her parents and her grandparents' mortality and everybody else that we know that has already died. God has planned all of our days. Let me give you some truths out of this. First life lesson is be careful not to misinterpret or misapply the promises of God. The reason I say this is because the runner, not recorded in Scripture, would have gone back and told Mary and Martha exactly what Jesus said. There's a promise from our Lord, Lazarus, sickness will not end in death. Mary and Martha must have rejoiced because they misunderstood everything that was about to happen. Jesus knew as a believer, Lazarus would never suffer the death of his soul. Jesus also knew that he was not going to be resurrected. He was going to be resuscitated. He was dead, 
he was resuscitated. We know that because Jesus says, pull the stone back from the grave so he can get out. When Jesus was resurrected, next Sunday's lesson for service, the reason the stone got pulled away was not so Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in and see the empty tomb. The resurrected body has no problems getting through stone walls. If resurrected, Lazarus would have no trouble getting through stone walls. This was not a resurrection of Lazarus. This was a resuscitation of Lazarus. Jesus knew his lack of life signs was not his death. He was going to be resuscitated. Mary and Martha had no clue. They misunderstood, misinterpreted the word of Jesus, the promise of Jesus. And as a result, when he shows up, they're even more despondent and they even blame him. If you had been here, your promise would have been fulfilled. He would have lived. And Jesus says, you don't understand what's going on here. Other insight. The promises of God never waver. But the timing, the application, and the manifestation are beyond our ability to predict or presume. There are thousands of promises in Scripture. Be very careful about applying how it's going to time out how it's going to apply to you and how it's going to manifest in your life. I've seen people take the promises of God and apply it to their mortgage payment next month. Uh-uh. I've seen people apply promises of God to their anticipated resignation from their great job tomorrow without having another job to back it up. Uh-uh. I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff with the promises of God from believers that don't get this point. When there's a promise of God, take it for what it is. But do not presume to know the mind of God as to its timing, its application in your life, or its manifestation in your job, your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, whatever it may be. Just like Mary and Martha, you can hear the word of God and say, I think I understand it. But until you see it play out in your life, we don't really understand it. Next little insight. No sickness ends in terminal death for a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to describe death in a couple of verses as the equivalent of sleeping. I'm going to tell you why. But we've got to understand that for the believer, there is no such thing as terminal death. There is a physical death that we go through, but our souls as a believer are immortal. That's why in John, he talks about eternal life over and over and over. That's why in the other Gospels, he talks about eternal life over and over and over. Eternal life means no terminal death. So we got to remember when he's talking about Lazarus, no sickness ever ends in our terminal death, just a passage of our bodies that we'll talk about later. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he, Lazarus, was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That verse is intended to make you look at it and go, huh? What? If it's us and we love them and we get that phone call, we run. My wife Natalie's out of town. If I get a phone call, she's in trouble. I'm not even finishing your lesson, right? I'm going to my wife because I love her. With any of your kids, with any of your family, if they are sick, if they're in trouble, when the call comes, you run. This is intended for us to look at and go, he really loves them. So he stayed for two more days. 
Our humanistic eyes look at this and go, he must not really love them. Not true at all. He is showing us how to apply this in our lives today in 2021. That's exactly why I did this. So everybody watching him and everybody that knows this truth will understand what's going on. Let me give you some insight. Christ delays are the delays of love. This is hard to wrap our brain around because when someone we love is in trouble, we drop and run. For God, delays are delays of love. Where I know if I go right now, it's not as good than if I hold going until I know it's going to be better. Life lesson. God uses these delays in love to change our perspectives, to mold our wills, and to strengthen our faith. When something bad happens and we cry out the profound and best prayer in all of Scripture, help, and nothing happens, your perspective goes through a whole lot of change. And it typically goes from, God, do you not hear me? To God, what do you want me to see? And that's the point of the delay. He wants everybody in this story. He wants all of us to see, back up and see what's going on. He wants it to change our will. Because when we pray, it's normally the prayer of genie in the bottle. God, I've decided what God should do so you make it happen. That's normally how our prayer gets translated. When we tell God, here's the miracle I want. As opposed to us having the mature prayer, which is, God, there's a tragedy I cannot handle on my own. I can't solve it. Doctors can't solve it. Whatever the situation is, nobody can deal with it. Help me understand what you want me to do with it. That is a molding of our will from our pride, genie in the bottle, gimme, gimme, gimme what I want, to what he wants. And it strengthens our faith as we learn when he shows up, he shows up in the right way, in the right time, in a powerful way that's a testimony to us and everybody else that sees what's going on. Insight. And the things that matter the most to us, but matter the least to God. There are often delays. That is, our health matters the most to us, least him, because he knows where our home is. Our jobs matter a lot to us, don't matter to him in the slightest. Our relationships matter tremendously amount to him, much less to God. There's a whole lot of delay in those issues because we over-prioritize the things that God does not put on the same priority level. Back to my screen. But in the things that matter most to God, our salvation, our spiritual protection, our spiritual growth, there is never any delay whatsoever. The moment the person prays, Jesus, come into my heart, it is instantaneous. There's never a delay. The moment you pray out loud, Satan, get out of here. Scripture proves, life proves, it's instantaneous. Satan cannot stand to be in the presence of the name of Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth. God, give me wisdom to see this. God, give me the wisdom to say this. It always happens. He always shows up. He never delays. So if we're frustrated, one of our diagnostics is, is this really important to God? It's a big deal to us. And you may say, Chris, how is terminal cancer not a big deal to God? 
How is a divorce not a big deal to God? How is the death of my baby not a big deal to God? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying those aren't big deals in life and big deals to our Father who loves us. But they're not on the same plane as salvation, keeping Satan at bay, and having us grow more Christ-like than we do and say. In those things, there's no delay. In these other things, God delays out of love because his timing, his calendar, his clock is not ours. Back into our text, verses 8. Then after that, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Remember chapter 10. Once again, they want to kill him. They go out into the desert with John the Baptist. They get this message. Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. They answer in verse 8, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again. Jesus has an interesting answer in verse 9. He says, aren't there 12 hours in a day or 12 hours of daylight? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Why in the world, when they say, Jesus, they want to kill you, don't go back there. It means your death sentence. And Jesus starts talking about the clock and day and night. Hmm, that's a good question. The disciples are obsessing on his life and death. They're noble. Not very smart, but they're noble. Jesus starts talking about the clock. It's because Jesus wants us to know there is a clock that God has and there's a clock that we have. And our earthly clock has periods of lightness and darkness because God is light. His calendar always has light. He always knows what's going on. If you're with him, you're always walking in light. Let me give you some life lessons. Every blessing and every miracle are always preceded by a testing. The reason I say this is because the verbiage of Jesus makes it clear as day. This is a test for the disciples. He did not say, let's go back to Lazarus. The disciples then zero in on Lazarus. We're going to Bethany. We're going to sneak in, sneak out. We're going to save Lazarus. It's a commando operation. If That's the word Jesus uses. Jesus doesn't say, let's go to Lazarus. He says, let's go to Judea. Let's go to the country. Let's walk around in broad daylight. And the disciples fail the test. Because they don't say, we've seen you walk on water. No one can mess with you, buddy. We've seen you heal lepers, blind people, lame people, and everybody else you touch. They've even seen him heal dead people, dead girl, dead boy, dead child. They do not say, no one can touch you because you are God. Their answer is, uh-oh, we got to protect him because he doesn't want to protect himself by staying out of Judea. They flunk the test. Jesus does the same thing all through Scripture. I can show you Adam. I can show you the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I can show you the judges. I can show you the kings of the monarchy. Saul, David, Solomon, all everybody that followed them. Every single person in the Old Testament that has any significant amount of ink. Every single person in the New Testament with any degree of ink. All the disciples, Paul, James, John, everybody. 
goes through a testing before blessing and before a miracle in their lives. Why? We'll figure out when we get to heaven. It's just God's plan. But there is a testing to remind us of things, usually our inadequacy, usually our dependence upon him or our need for him, usually our fallible, sick nature. And the testing reminds us when we see the miracle, we see the blessing, who the honor goes to. When testing, particularly testing and failure, precede the miracle and the blessing, it's all directed to him because we realize we just flunked we didn't do a good job, and he's going to do a miracle and do a blessing. If we do a good job and we're focused on him the entire time, then our perspective is, thank you for showing up again. All the praise goes to you. Insight. God gives us a certain amount of time to use our spiritual gifts, supposed to be plural, and live out his will for our lives, and nothing can shorten it. That goes back to my mom's favorite verse in Psalm 119. God knows our days. we got a finite amount of time. Next truth, and forgive me because I, oh, I forgot to blow this one up. It says, if nothing can shorten our ordained days, then there's enough time for everything that God wants done. That means God's given us a plan. God's given us a calendar. He's going to give us the days to do it. Number three, because we have finite time from God, the time we have should not be wasted. We don't know, Psalm 119, the number of days he has for us. For some, it can end today or tomorrow. For some, it can end decades from now. We don't know. So not knowing God's counter for us, we got to use all of our time. Great little cross-reference on all three of these points. Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15 says, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. It's the exact point Jesus is trying to say to the disciples. They flunk the test, but God does not chastise them. He doesn't criticize them. Jesus just says, come on, knuckleheads, let me teach you some more. Verse 11, he said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. In the next verse, he says, boys, I'm talking about death, not sleeping. But on this point, before I jump on, I want you to focus. He uses sleep as an analogy. And he uses it for a very particular reason, even though the disciples don't get the analogy. Insight. Jesus' view of death is unambiguous. He teaches more about heaven and hell than anybody in the Old Testament or the New Testament. He talks about it all the time. He talks about everlasting life, the fact there's no terminal death for the believer. He talks about hell and terminal death for the non-believer. As I say on the screen, there are two deaths for non-believers in him, a physical death and a spiritual death, but only one death for those who do believe in him. That's everlasting life that's used over and over and over in the Gospels. Other insight. Jesus' sleep illustration was intended as an analogy, not as doctrine. The reason I say that is Jesus in the next verse is going to say, no, we're talking about death. I'm using sleep so you'll better understand what physical death is like. 
The reason I say you can't use that for doctrine is because the Seventh-day Adventists have taken this verse and they've messed it up. Seventh-day Adventist theology believes in soul sleep. Their idea is when you die, you go to sleep until the second coming of Christ that Greg talked about in the service this morning when we all get resurrected and you get woken up from your soul sleep, rejoin your body and spend eternity in heaven. The problem is that's inconsistent with Scripture. The biggest inconsistency with Scripture is Jesus' words, the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. No soul sleep. Today you thief will be with me in paradise means there is no soul sleep. Debate with our friends at the Seventh-day Adventist on another day. This is not doctrine. There is no sleep. It's an analogy. Why is it an analogy? There's some insight on sleep because there are things that physical death is to a believer that sleep also is to all of us. And we can wrap our brains around sleep. We can't wrap our brains around physical death. What do we know about sleep? Sleep is harmless, right? Unless your wife or spouse snores or flails in their sleep and hits you or something. But uh, that's another lesson for another day. Sleep is harmless. You go to sleep, you wake up, and it's great. Just like the promise for the believer when we have a physical death, that physical death is harmless. It is described as eternal life because the essence of us, our souls, our memories, our loves, our likes, don't change. All of your loves and like are not connected to your physical body. I can cut off any part of your body. I can remove any part of your body. Your loves and likes don't change. You still love the same kind of food. You still have the same sports teams. You still love the same people. Our souls that love and like live forever. So you'll still be a fan of whatever you're a fan of now in heaven. Those loves and likes don't change. We just have a greater love and like in Jesus Christ. So sleep and physical death are harmless. Number two, it is essential. If you don't sleep, you will be certifiably insane in 72 hours. I guarantee you. And if you only get two or three or four hours of sleep, you'll be certifiably insane after about seven days. Every newborn mother can say amen to that one. Sleep is essential, just like physical death is essential. We can't change it. We can't get out of it. It's a part of the world that now exists after the fall. Death is essential. We've got to have that before we go to eternity. Number three, sleep is transformative. When you get seven or more hours of sleep, it makes you refreshed, revive, your brain works better, your emotions work better, your body works better, particularly when you stack multiple of them in a row. Science is clear. God made us to sleep. We got to sleep. So just like sleep is transformative for us physically, physical death is transformative because it changes us. Notice what it says in verse 14. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now, this first sentence I didn't highlight, but this is jaw-dropping awesome. He is a couple of days' journey away. There is no messenger. He knows because he loves Lazarus the second he breathes his last breath, and he tells his disciples the moment that takes place. He knows when his saint 
dies and steps into eternity. But he says in verse 15, I'm glad. It's another, huh? What? It doesn't make sense when you contemplate it from a human perspective. I'm glad for you, the disciples. I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Let's talk for just a minute before we get to Thomas about his gladness. Why does it say Jesus is glad that someone he loved died? Point number one, he understood death for a believer is a homecoming. I am confident beyond a shadow of a doubt the first thing Jesus said to Lazarus when Lazarus was resuscitated and walked out of the grave was he apologized. I guarantee you when we get to heaven and you ask Lazarus what happened, he says, my Lord apologized. Because to come back from heaven back into a fallen world where Lazarus has to get sick again and die again ain't a good thing for Lazarus. Lazarus is going to testify until they kill him or he dies. But for Lazarus, it's like, I'm back here? I mean, it. I, I love Houston. It's my home. But if I got the choice of heaven or Houston, and you got to tell me I got to come back to Houston, I'm not going to be happy. I want to be in heaven. Lazarus would have been perplexed, but when Jesus would have apologized, it would have been, okay, I understand. There's a purpose here. Number two, Jesus was going to demonstrate a resuscitation and not a resurrection. He's got the power of resurrection. We're going to see it Easter Sunday, next Sunday. We're going to see it in our lesson when we get to the end of John. He's got the power of resurrection, but with a believer that he's trying to make a point with, it is resuscitation. It is intended to show us that he is the God of our little medical problems. See, if it's only the God of resurrection, when we're sick, we pray for it to end quickly so he can resurrect us. But if he's the God of resuscitation, if he's the God of regeneration, then I can have a faith. I don't have to die and be resurrected in a brand new body. This little thing I got that's fallen apart and aging can be resuscitated. It can be regenerated. So I pray with faith and confidence to the great physician, not as the God of just resurrection, but the God of resuscitation and resurrection. So when I pray, God, my leg hurts. It's not killing me, but I can't walk. I've got a God of resuscitation and regeneration, not just a God that I got to die before he can do something. It's intended to be encouraging for us. Point number three, Jesus was going to end all debate over his divinity. Resuscitation for human beings is limited to about 10 minutes or in a handful of cases, if you fall into frigid, freezing sub-freezing water, they can resuscitate you for about 20 to 30 minutes. About 12 years ago, my dad coded, died on the operating table without oxygen for 10 minutes. Somehow, God resuscitated him, and they immediately put him back into a coma, wrapped his body up with cold electrical blankets, and they froze him for three days. 
And then after three days of being in a coma so he wouldn't shiver, they unfroze him and woke him up. My sister was there and he said, hi, Jennifer, how you doing? My dad was resuscitated after 10 minutes. Now, if he had gone 15, no freezing water involved like somebody falls through the ice, my dad's never coming back again. 20 minutes, human beings can't do it. Lazarus is going to be dead for four days. Martha is going to utter my favorite verse in the King James, he stinketh. <laughs> he was decomposing. We'll see that in less than two weeks. He's dead beyond resuscitation, and Jesus is going to resuscitate him and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt he's God. You would think at the end of John chapter 11, everybody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Doesn't happen. And in three weeks, we're going to have a deep discussion of why that doesn't happen. You're going to like that. It ends in the last couple of minutes we got with verse 16. Then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. Now, Thomas, guy that wants to see after the crucifixion, the scar in his side, the holes in his hands and his feet. We'll talk about him later. I love him. It calls him Didymus, which our translation translates twin, and there's some fascinating speculation. We don't know till we get to heaven, but because all the twins, all the brothers in Scripture are described together, James and John, Peter and Andrew, always together, Thomas is always with another disciple every single time he's described by name. Matthew. It's believed the twin was Matthew. He's a traitor to Israel, so Thomas never wants to be associated with him. But when the gospel writers describe him, it's always Matthew and Thomas, Thomas and Matthew, Matthew and Thomas, Thomas and Matthew. Maybe not. I'm not here to tell you that's what it was, but a lot of people seem to think that. So we're going to talk about Thomas later on once we get to the resurrection. He says to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. For decades, I thought... That was the disciple equivalent of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> right? I thought that was the world is ending. Let's go so we all can die together, right? It's just like the ultimate statement of resignation and depression. I've decided after a whole bunch of study, Thomas was sold out to his master. And he said, if this guy's going to die, let's go with him. We're all in this together. It's like, yeah, charge. He's going to die. We're all going to die. Now, he's got not a lot of brains. He's got it totally wrong. He can't see the truth of what he's been living for two and a half years. But he's got a whole bunch of passion. So it's kind of ready, fire, aim, right? That's Thomas, right? He's got it all backwards, but he's got a lot of passion. We'll pick up verse 17 a week from today, or a week after Easter, two weeks from today. Let me give you some application. Where was God during the tragedy? The first 16 verses says, with us, if not in body, in spirit. He knows the last minute Lazarus takes his breath. He knows exactly how sick he is. He loves him. He is with him, even if he's not physically there to wrap his arms around him. He knows exactly what's going on to those he loves. So in any tragedy, where is God? The answer is with them or with us. 
Point number two, why did God allow fill in the blank to happen to them? Why did that baby die? Why did that person get sick? Why did this tragedy happen? Why this bankruptcy? Why this divorce? Why this bad thing? And the answer is because we live in a fragile, fallen world where God is still in control. Satan can destroy lives. God does not lose one second of sovereignty. There is a truth to be learned. There is a witness to be shared. There's a faith to be expanded. God is always there in the tragedy. Last point, why has God been silent despite my prayerful anguish? The answer is because your anguish may be about something that's not a high priority to God, as high as salvation or spiritual growth. He still cares and he's lovingly waiting for the right opportunity. So when he lovingly waits for the right opportunity, we've got to have patience to see him working his will. Let me end by telling you a story. And I was reminded of this as I was driving this week, and I heard a song that immediately made me think, this is the way I got to end. I want to introduce you to a guy. A handful of you will have heard the guy that I'm going to introduce you to. Most of you have never heard of the guy that I'm going to introduce you to because he's a giant in Christian history, but he's not known to most of us. We don't write books about him or do things talking about him. Horatio Spafford. I love him because he's a lawyer. <laughs> he's a lawyer in Chicago. Kind of looks like a stern lawyer. He practiced law in Chicago where he had an office downtown, a law firm downtown in the 1820s, or sorry, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Very successful. Had a very large, wealthy home in downtown Chicago. Had two rent houses in downtown Chicago. In the great fire of Chicago in 1861, everything he owned burned to the ground. He lost his law firm building. He lost his house. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his two rent houses, which is how he got some extra income. He lost it all. Two years later, still living in temporary accommodations, he said to his wife, let's go to Paris. There's a business opportunity, and we can live there for a while while they rebuild Chicago. So he bought passage on a ship to take the entire family. The day they were supposed to leave, something happened with a client. He could not leave for one more week while he wrapped up a legal problem, told his wife and his daughter, get on, daughters, four daughters, get on the boat. I'll be one week behind you. As the boat is sailing across the Atlantic, a British iron ship accidentally runs into the French ship they were on, and the French ship that they were on sunk in 14 minutes. The mother waiting on the deck to get into a lifeboat had all four of the girls I've got up on the screen, ages 11, 8, 5, and 2, swept out of her arms into the sea. The mother lost consciousness but somehow did not drown, and one of the British seamen grabbed her and pulled her into their boat, and she survived. She sent this telegram from Cardiff once she got to the shore, and you may be able to read the first line that says, saved alone. What shall I do? The minute he got this telegram, he dropped everything, got on the boat, and sailed across the Atlantic to get his wife. As they sailed over the spot, where the captain told him the French vessel sunk. 
he was moved to write a poem that became one of the greatest hymns of the 20th century. As he sailed over the place God took his daughters home, he penned, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. One of the most profound hymns in all of Christianity is a great lesson for today. When tragedy strikes, it is well with my soul. Why? Because of everything I taught you today. He's with us in the tragedy. He knows exactly what's going on despite our sinful, fallen, decrepit, horrible world we live in. And if he delays it all, it's for a greater purpose and a greater way to understand him and show him to those around us. If you like that, part two gets even better. Join me the week after uh, Easter, and we'll continue our study in Lazarus from John chapter 11. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're in awe of the truth of your word. We're in awe of the reality of your person. And while we don't understand because our fallen bodies have a fallen mind, we just pray, whether the struggle is daily and temporary or it's long-term and wearing us out, we can say, it is well with my soul because you love us, you love me. You are always with me. You know exactly what's going on in my fallen body and a fallen world. And if there's any delay to any prayer I have ever prayed, it is because you lovingly are waiting until it's best for me and best for your will. And for that, I can say thank you. For that, we can praise your name. For that, we can say thank you for having us together in this Bible study. Keep us safe through the Easter season. Keep us safe until we're back here together two weeks from today. And we ask all these things with a warm, hearty thank you for the wellness that is in our souls. Not because of us, not because of our faith, because of the person of Jesus Christ that we cling to like a life preserver. We say thank you and I love you. And so be it. Amen. See y'all next week. Or no, two weeks from now. See y'all two weeks from now. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.